If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. As we've been working through the seven churches in Asia, or by modern terms, we would say Asia Minor or Turkey, uh, we come to the seventh one, and that's the church in Laodicea. Sadly, it seems to be the worst of the bunch, but uh, we'll consider that because although they were down by God's grace, they weren't out because of Christ. So we'll read and consider. So this is the book of Revelation, beginning at chapter 14 of verse, excuse me, chapter 3 at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, <clears throat> These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is true from the beginning to the end. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in history and in providence, in the creation. But in regards to salvation and sanctification and knowing you and understanding all the other natural revelation correctly, you've given us your word. You've given us the Holy Scriptures. You had them written by inspired prophets and apostles and holy men of old. You had them preserved. You brought them down through history. And you've had them translated into our very own language so that we might hear you speaking to us in our, our mother tongue. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this day from your word. Write it in our hearts according to your promise and be with us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, the church in Laodicea was about 20 miles from Colossae. And if you read the epistle to the Colossians toward the end, Paul actually gives directions that that letter was to be sent to Laodicea and was to be read there by that church. So it was a church that Paul had helped found. It was one he was interested in. And 
Uh, that was about a generation or so before what we're reading right now. But there's some interesting things, even in Colossians, if we turn there. Um, in chapter 4, before we dive into Lord willing to Revelation chapter 3, when Paul is concluding his epistle to the Colossian church, uh, he says in chapter 4 at verse 16, what I just mentioned, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So he had sent a letter there, and either that's uh, in our Bibles under a different name, something maybe Ephesians or something like that, or it simply was an epistle that uh, wasn't inspired the same as the others. The apostles did write letters, you know, uh, that were not scripture. And, and so we don't have it preserved in history. But we do have Colossians. God had that preserved. So Paul was corresponding with them and writing to them. And then he says, and to Archippus, uh, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And then he concludes this, this salutation by my own hand. Paul, remember my chains. He was in prison in Rome when he wrote this. Grace be with you. Amen. Some believe that Archippus may be the angel of the church in Revelation 3. A generation later, he seems to be a young man at this time. He had received a ministry from the Lord. And you notice Paul's admonition to him is, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, the church in Laodicea, we know from church history, uh, in the next couple of centuries, was actually a very zealous church, or it seems anyway, from what we can gather. There was an early church council held there. And so it does seem at least the generation that received this letter that we read in Revelation responded positively to the Lord's rebuke to them and recognized that he was indeed calling them to a renewed zeal. And that comes through pretty clear in this epistle when he speaks of them being lukewarm, threatening them with being spewed out of his mouth, etc., etc. But he also gives them the remedy uh, and then reminds them at verse 19 that his rebuke is coming from his care for them, his love, his affection for them. So let's consider what this uh, letter says. He writes, it's to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? So this was in the city of Laodicea, as I've mentioned. Laodicea was a very prosperous city. Tacitus, the Roman historian, lets us know that in the year 62 AD, probably about 30 years before this was written, um, the city had been destroyed by an earthquake. I mean, Syria, you know, we see in Turkey today on the eastern part of the country, they had one that the Turkey, that area of the world is known for some pretty devastating earthquakes. When the Roman government stepped in to, tr to offer to help rebuild their city, the people that lived there said, no, 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 we have enough. We'll build it ourselves. So the citizens of Laodicea, without receiving any assistance from the Roman government, rebuilt their city, and they rebuilt it very beautifully. They were very wealthy. Uh, wool was their chief export. They also exported ISAV, which comes up in this epistle, doesn't it? Uh, they were on the Lycus River, which is the river that flowed through there. Near uh, the city upstream, there were some cold stream, cold like fountains that were there, um, springs, and some hot springs. And the problem with Laodicea's water was that the two cold springs and hot springs <clears throat> flowed into the Lycus River, and in Laodicea, it was known for having lousy water. 
Yeah, they're very wealthy, but the lukewarm nature of their water was not pleasant. If you're ever drinking from mineral springs, you might know what it's like. Uh, I know in Ashland, they have their their uh, water up there. I can't think of what it's actually in it uh, other than it just doesn't taste good. But they're, it's, hey, it's healthy for you. Well, we're not told that the water in Laodicea was healthy. It just had a tendency to be tepid. And so a lot of things come up, that we, and we do know a lot about Laodicea. We know a lot from this epistle about the inward working in the church. So he writes to them, and he first, what Christ does in each of these epistles, he tells them who he is. He lets them know certain things about himself, primarily based on the opening revelation in chapter 1 of John's vision. But he says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So he uses three things to identify himself to them. The word amen is a Hebrew word. It means truth. So when you say amen, you're saying true. Some have said it's a religious way or Hebrew way of saying yes, but it's an affirmative uh, word. Christ lets them know that he is the truth. So what he's going to tell them might not fit with their own notions of where they are or who they are, but he's going to tell them the truth. And they might be surprised by it because apparently they had a pretty high opinion of themselves that the Lord had to deal with because their opinion of themselves was wrong. But he says, I am the, the amen. These things says the amen. And then the faithful and true witness. Now, first and foremost, we know Christ is the faithful and true witness concerning God. He is the revelation of God. He is the one that's called the word of God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John, the same man that wrote this book, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, this one was in the beginning with God. And then the next thing in John's Gospel, it says, all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made or that was made. And so he then identifies himself as... The beginning of the creation of God. Now, some of the cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, take this and the early Arians, and they say, oh, see, Jesus is the first creature. It's like, that's not what Jesus said here. He didn't say, I am the beginning cre creation of God. He said that, no, he said the beginning of the creation of God. John's gospel tells us that all things were made by him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. Christ is excluded from being a creature in that sense. Now, he did become a human being at his incarnation. He took to himself a created human body and a human nature. He's God and man in one person. But when Christ says he's the beginning of the creation of God, that simply means he created everything. Well, there's two creations mentioned in the Bible, aren't there? There's the first one we read of in Genesis. And then there's the one we read in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Laodicean church needed to hear this, because, you know, when we're told we need to change, when we're told, and everyone in this room has probably realized that, we, you know, have to grow, we need to change. We need to repent of our sins. We need to walk closer to God. We need to turn away from those things that are displeasing to him. Christ is able to do that. He's able to bring dead men back to life. And so if you're in a church or in your own life, if you're spiritually dead, 
And by the way, this church wasn't dead. It was just kind of teetering or tottering, however you want to say it. Uh, it was in a sorry condition. It was sick. He's the beginning of the creation of God. If Christ can call the creation into being out of nothing, as it says in Hebrews, that the things that are made or things that are seen are made of things that do not appear uh, because Christ spoke it into existence. He brought the creation, I think the Latin term is ex nihilo. He brought it out of nothing. Uh, and he can do that for us. You know, sometimes we, when we're witnessing or praying for family members or even for ourselves, we have to realize if you're praying for their salvation or they have a problem, remember often what they need is not going to come from themselves. This is where modern psychology and Christian theology separate because modern psychology, well, dig deep within yourself and find the, the solution. <laughs> and if you're honest, I've dug deep and I'm finding a whole lot of garbage. Okay. Uh, what you need comes from Christ. Now, there are things in us that the Lord has put in us, the fruit of the Spirit, etc. We want to see those brought forth. But we need a creative work. You must be born again. In this church, they needed to know that Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God, both the first creation and the new birth, the new creation. And he will be the creator of the new heavens and the new earth. All things will be created and are going to be. So far, everything's been created was made by him. So he tells them of himself, lets them know he's perfectly capable and suitable and sufficient to meet their needs. But then he tells them about themselves. He starts, he says, I know your works. Now, these are singular. He's actually still addressing the angel, whether it was Archippus or someone else. He's saying, I know thy works in the old King James. That's when you're talking to an individual, as you know. We don't have that in our modern English like we used to. Uh, he says, I know your works or thy works that, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, literally, you know, if you want to see, that's the correct rendering. But the Greek says it a little differently. It's, I'm about to spew you. It uses the word mellow, M-E-L-L-O. And it doesn't mean like cool, okay, when you're mellow. The Greek word mellow means about, I'm about and then he uses an infinitive verb, a two verb, about to do something. And so he's letting them know that he's ready to give them up because of their complacency, because they're neither cold nor hot. They're lukewarm. Now, I don't know about you, but once in a while, you know, I remember in my younger days anyway, and I wasn't in a hurry, taking a nice warm bath is really relaxing, very comforting, Okay. Uh, you can fall asleep in the bathtub because the water's nice and you know warm and, and just puts you to sleep. You in the bathtub, you're stepping in a bathtub that, that somehow got accidentally filled with cold water. What do you do? <laughs> you get out pretty quick, all right? Unless you're just desperate and need a bath, okay? Generally, if the water's icy cold, unless you're up in a mountain stream, even then with the hope of getting out quick, you're gonna move. You start moving a lot quicker than you do otherwise. If you stick your toe in a bathtub and you, or you get ready to get in a shower or whatever it is, uh, or you take a drink of something, a coffee or tea or something, some hot, if it's like boiling hot, and by the way, the word hot here is zestos in Greek. It doesn't mean warm. It means boiling hot. Jesus is saying, I wish you were either 
pretty close to freezing cold or boiling hot. Because then you do something about it. That was their problem. They were comfortable. As far as they were concerned, life was a bowl of cherries. You notice there's nothing in his epistle mentioning troubles within the church. There was no division, apparently. They were all comfortable being complacent. There's nothing about them being persecuted from outside, even though they lived in the Roman Empire. And other churches at the same time were experiencing pretty fierce persecution. If you remember Smyrna, they were told that uh, they, were, they were encouraged to be faithful unto death. So then the devil's going to put some of you in prison for 10 days. Uh, he said, be faithful unto death and you'll receive a crown of life. Some churches were being persecuted. Persecuted. There's nothing about the Laodicean church that indicates they had any outward problem because they were no threat to the devil. They were comfortable. They were sound asleep as in regard to the kingdom of God. And so the devil's not going to disturb them. If someone is spiritually dull and dead and lethargic and not paying attention to anything in regard to the kingdom of God or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly where the devil wants them, particularly if they're a Christian. He doesn't want you being cold and he doesn't want you being hot. He'll do everything he can to make sure you're comfortable and that you feel pretty good about yourselves. If you notice here, after Christ tells them that was their condition, he does say, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth, literally. I'm about to do it. Now, there's hope in that. That's not, you know, so we say, oh, the Lord really rebuked him. Jesus had just given them over. No, he hadn't. That's what this epistle is all about. They're in a bad, sorry condition, and Jesus has not given up on them. Note that. This church was, we would say, at least spiritually, corrupt. They weren't everything they should be, but note how they're addressed to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. They were in danger spiritually. They were in trouble. Christ recognizes them as one of those seven golden lamps. So a church can have problems and still be a true church. We need to realize that. But a church that has problems in this regard or problems relating to sin, they don't deal with them. The Lord does threaten to remove their candlestick. In this case, he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Later on and today, from the reports I've read and the research I did, there appears to be no church in Laodicea at this time in history. It did finally, uh, after a few centuries, fade. And after the Muslim conquest and the Ottoman Empire, there may be some Christians in this city, but they're not noted. Uh, sometimes God has his people tucked away. We don't hear about them. But there's no vital church there today. And it's been that way for centuries. So then he describes their condition. He tells them who he is. He tells them what their danger was. They were comfortable. They weren't cold. And, you know, they didn't feel the need to do anything about being cold. They weren't hot. They didn't feel the need to do something about that or to pursue, you know, the word zeal in, as he tells them, you know, be zealous and repent. The word zeal in Greek is related to that same root in in the Greek language to the word boiling hot. When you're zealous, you're hot. We used to, I remember back in the Jesus movement, some of you might have heard this from different groups. You know, some say, yeah, brothers or that sister, they're really on fire for Jesus. Okay, they're hot. They're What's that mean? Well, that means they're active. They're talking to others. They're excited about the truth. They've been changed by it, and they want other people to know. 
He's saying, basically, I wish you, if you were cold, you might do something about it. If you really realized you were very possibly on your way to hell, you might actually do something about it. If you were really zealous, you'd be doing what you need to be doing. He says, I wish you were one or the other, because then you could affect some change. So he rebukes them to bring them out of their lethargy. And here's their condition. Note how they appraised themselves. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy. And the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. The idea, you've come, you, you see yourself, I'm rich, I have everything I need. And they were physically rich as a city. And most of the Christians there were fairly prosperous, although they were slaves in the Roman Empire. But even the slaves were doing pretty good if they had masters that were wealthy. But you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy. I've come into a state of prosperity and wealth, and it's not going to change. Because the perfect tense means a completed action in the past. It has continuing present results. So I've arrived. We've have, we've arrived as a church. Keep in mind, this is a church that's thinking this way. Okay, this isn't just a couple of people. Because remember, let, he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church itself was thinking this way as a body. It wasn't just a couple of individuals, although there were exceptions, as we'll see. But you said, I have become wealthy. I am established in my wealth and have need of nothing. Uh, later we read, you know, the, 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 the Babel church, the whore of Babylon that's later mentioned in this book, uh, believes that it would never be moved. It, it had everything it needed. It had all the worldly wealth anyone could want. So Christ says, that's how you appraise yourself, that you're rich, you have become wealthy, and have need of nothing generation before they'd waved off the Roman government. They had need of nothing from the Roman government. They had their bags of gold and their treasuries. They were able to buy everything they need and hire the workers to get it done. They rebuilt a city and it was a very beautiful city. But Jesus says, that's how you appraise yourself. You think you have need of nothing. What you don't know is that you are wretched Literally, you are the wretched one. It has the definite article in the original. You're the wretched one, which shows they may have been comparing themselves with some of the other churches. You know, they'd look at Smyrna or Philadelphia, and they'd go, oh, those poor people there. Obviously, they're not doing what they should be doing in life because see how they're poor. And look at us. You know, God promises to bless those that are godless, but I've run into this sometimes. God promises to bless the godly, and I have wealth, therefore I must be godly. Really dangerous uh, evaluation. I've seen that, where some, and I've seen people say, look, if this guy's poor, he's probably poor because either he sinned or his parents sinned. Why should I take my money and give it to help some guy that's probably poor because he's a sinner? And so, like the rich man, they just step over Lazarus and don't worry about it. Because obviously Lazarus must be a sinner because look at what he saw. He's sick. He's dying. He's impoverished. He, he's homeless. Everything about him says this guy obviously has done something to displease God. What a twisted way and what a dangerous way to think your way into hell. So we need to stop and evaluate things correctly. If God has prospered you, he's done it for his glory and because he loves you. Give him thanks. Paul said when he wrote to Timothy, the Lord has, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So if you have wealth, enjoy it. You can give God thanks. But make sure you know who to whom it really belongs. It belongs to the Lord. Okay. Um, and as Job said, naked came I from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. He just meant to 
me when I leave this life. He said, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So if God has prospered you, give him thanks and stir up your zeal. Say, wow, if God's given me the ability to serve him, look at this. I remember hearing a very rich man. I guess I can mention his name. He's probably going to watch my uh, live stream. And it's Ted Turner. And one of the reasons, years ago, decades ago, I heard an interview with him, and he was lamenting the fact uh, that there was so much poverty in the world, and that you know it was hard for him to, to to believe in God. He basically said he didn't any longer because there was so much poverty in the world, and he didn't see God doing anything about it. And this is a guy sitting on top of billions of dollars. <laughs> it's like maybe God did do something to help the poor get some relief. But the person that he invested with wealth doesn't see it that way. Now, I'm not going to try to judge Ted Turner. I hope he gets right with God if he hasn't already. And I don't know what he does with his money for charitable causes. So I'm not trying to slander the man. I just, when I heard that statement, I thought, how can you say that when you yourself have all this wealth? Maybe God gave it to you to help a few other folk. Okay. I don't know. Like I say, um, and the little we have, sometimes, you know, you have a lot more when you learn to share. So here Jesus says, you think you have everything, but you don't know you're the wretched one, you're miserable, you're poor. Whoa, wait a minute. We've got nice clothes. We live in nice houses. We live in a beautiful city. You know, we've got a beautiful building where we meet. What on earth is going on? Jesus says, you're poor. You don't even know that you're impoverished. Blind. You think you see everything correctly? Your self-evaluation is so far off. You think you see, and you are blind and naked. The idea is that you think you're clothed sumptuously, as it refer to the rich man and Lazarus. Um, you're impoverished. Your garments are filthy rags before God. So then Jesus, he doesn't just rebuke them and leave them in that condition. Our Savior is gracious. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. How are you going to get the money to do that? Well, Isaiah 55, remember? Uh, let's take a look at that because that's really a, a wonderful commentary on this passage. You know, the Bible interprets the Bible. If we say, well, we're supposed to buy it. How do we buy spiritual treasures? Isaiah 55 says, ho, that's to get your attention. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you do that? Somebody else paid for it. When Jesus says, come, buy from me these things, Jesus already paid for it. Okay? You know, it's like if you went to a store and you said, a uh, guy goes to ring it up, and you've seen all the price tags on everything, and you know, begin to wonder, uh-oh, do I have enough money in my account, or do I have enough money on me? And the guy just handed, and you, the bill, you have, it comes up zero. You say, why? And goes, well, I have this other account over here, and it's all paid for. That's what he's talking about. You go to Jesus. That's what he's telling you. That's what Isaiah is saying, or the Lord's saying through Isaiah. You need these things? Go to the one that gives them out freely. You need to buy them, but you need to recognize the price has already been paid. Christ secured your salvation and everything you need. But note what he says. I counsel you to buy from me. Don't go someplace else. Gold refined in the fire. You need to get the real wealth. The wealth that is passed through the fire. It's refined. 
And the idea is newly refined. You know, it, it's uh, glistening in its beauty. That you may be rich. You need to get the real riches from Jesus. And white garments. Remember he told the Philippian or the Philadelphia church, uh, he said that, you know, you think you're poor, but you're really rich. He told the Laodicean church, you think you're rich, but you're really poor. So he says, you need that gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You need to quit trusting in your own self-sufficiency. You need to trust that Jesus is the one who clothes you in his righteousness. It has to do with the doctrine of justification by faith. That is, Christ did everything necessary for us to be made right with God. We receive that benefit by trusting him. And even that faith is his gift to us. That you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now in this life and particularly on judgment day, because all things will be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve. Now they made that in Laodicea. That was one of the products that they made. And the idea, the, the word for uh, eye salve, it actually has to do with how it was packaged. It was rolled up, like almost like a little column. And it was rolled up and they would unroll it, take it, and they'd put it on their eyes. And some historians tell us that it would initially sting and then it would begin to heal. Just like sometimes when the Lord rebukes us. It's not pleasant at first, but then it bears good fruit, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us. So he says, you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve because what you think you're seeing, you're getting all wrong. You're out of focus. You're blind. You need to have your eyes opened and you need to be seen clearly. You need to evaluate yourself according to what God says of you. That's good and that's healthy. And then he reminds them, because again, you know, the, the tendency is that those, we see this in the doctrine of salvation really clearly. The non-elect, when they hear the warnings, they just assume, well, surely God has to love me as much as I love myself. So I don't have anything to worry about. I'm just this awesome person, and I'm doing God a favor, I think, by you know saying I'm a Christian. Um, and so they don't heed the warnings. They continue on in their sense. Oh, everybody's doing it. It's okay. It's all right. The devil's right there to say, yeah, that's right. Whereas one of Christ's lambs, when they hear these rebukes, they melt under it because they go, woe is me, because the spirits at work in their heart convicting them of their sin to get it out of their life, and they will have a tendency to faint. You've seen some of the goats uh, with it fall over if you yell at them, okay? Some Christians are like that, not goats, but sheep do it too, apparently, at least spiritually. They have a tendency to faint under the Lord's rebukes. So here he lets them know, because the one, there's some maybe in Laodicea that wouldn't take heed. We're not told that there was or there wasn't. But we do know there's that stony ground sometimes. It receives the word and very you know, it's that sown among thorns where the worldly riches and the lust of things chokes the word. So here the Lord encourages, I think, the, the sheep, the lambs in the Laodicean church. And he lets them know, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He lets them know, I'm not telling you this because I hate you. It might be unpleasant to hear it, and some of the wealthy ones there, you know, were lambs of Christ. That's why he rebukes them. Some of the people that were prosperous, who began to trust in their wealth. Remember, Jesus even said, uh, beware of the deceitfulness of riches. Why? Again, because we have that mentality that, well, God surely must love me because look at all the nice things I have. He's blessed me, and he only blesses the godly, correct? No, incorrect. 
So I've got a lot of nice shiny stuff. So God must love me. So whatever I'm doing, I guess it's okay. Deadly, deadly thinking. So here he lets those people that are Christians, as he's rebuked them, as they receive it, he lets them know, I'm telling you this because I care about you. And actually the word for love there, uh, when he said to the Philippians, uh, excuse me, to the Philadelphian church, that he was going to have their enemies come and worship at their feet so that they would know that he had loved them. He uses agape there. That's that love that the same way God loves us. He doesn't use that word here. He uses here, the, it's the word uh, phileo. And that's the word that means friendship or affection. Not a bad word. He lets them know, I'm rebuking you because I'm your friend. I'm your friend. And that's really what he's telling them. As many as I love, as many as I have received as my friends, I rebuke and chasten. Generally, rebuke is with words. Chastening usually is providence, whether sickness or adverse circumstances. But it can also just be brokenheartedness over our condition because the word of God has taken effect. Remember King Josiah? He was pretty wealthy, but when he read God's word, had the law read to him, what did he do? He tore his garment and he says, woe is me. Woe is us. He said, we've sinned against the Lord. He was uh, frightened by it and dealt with things. And he brought about reformation. He began to change things. Josiah is a really good character to study up on in your Bible. But Jesus says, "I, as many as I love, as many as I care about, I rebuke. And that means to confront. Okay, elenkos is the Greek word there. I rebuke and chasten. And the word chasten is related to the word child, actually. I deal with you as children need to sometimes be dealt with. So what does that mean? He says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. You need to stir up yourself. You know, would you were either cold or hot, really? The best can it be hot. Be zealous. Don't be complacent. Deal with your comfortableness. Often, for most Christians, there was a time, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he told them, there once was a time when you were absolutely zealous. When there was an opportunity to hear God's word, you were there. When you had an opportunity to gather with your brothers and sisters in, in various meetings, you were there. But then slowly but surely, we, we begin to cool off. There were times when you prayed every day. And all you thought about was the Lord, or so it seemed. You know, you were zealous in your business, but you were you, you hung upon his word because you loved him and you know he loved you. He's telling him, be zealous. Stir yourself up. I remember hearing a guy from the Caribbean years ago talking about the swizzle stick. And, you know, it's like, what on our sat? And he said, uh, swizzle stick, what it was, instead of having an egg beater, they had, you've probably seen a little wooden stick, and it's got like four things coming at the bottom. He said they put that in, in a jar or in a bowl and they swizzle it. And it would stir things up, whether, you know, you're making scrambled eggs or mixing up some kind of dressing or mixing up something to put into something else, you know, your food. You'd, you'd put this, and on when the rod comes up, you use this, he said. And he said his prayer was, Lord, swizzle me. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, Lord, stir me up. I've gotten too comfortable. I know it. Be with me. Help me because I know I need to be zealous. I know I need to be stirred up. Please deal with me gently. You know, as God says, don't be like the horse or the mule that has to be led with bitter bridle or it won't come near you. What does that mean? It means listen with your ears, respond with your heart and with your feet and with your hands and with your mouth. Respond by doing. 
Repentance is turning, having a change of heart. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Then he gives this wonderful promise. This is sometimes, I think, somewhat misused in regard to salvation, because he's really here addressing a church. But he does say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, interesting, where's Jesus in relationship to the Laodicean church? He's outside of it. They'd gotten so busy, they weren't interested. Now, part of it could be because of their complacency. Remember when Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Could be they weren't really concerned with uh, evangelizing or helping people that needed to be helped. But the Lord himself says, I stand at the door and knock. And clearly he was outside the church, at least in regard to fellowship, not in authority or providence, because we wouldn't have this letter if it was that case. But then he gives this promise. Okay, the church itself may not respond. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Time will tell. But he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, it's not the door of your heart. It's the door of the church, okay? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that is, if anyone says, Lord Jesus, please come in. Come in to me. Come and be in our church. Be in our fellowship. I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, I was thinking, that's nice, isn't it? Jesus does tell us that when he returns, there'll be a great dinner, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think, well, Lord, when... How was this fulfilled? And I thought, wait a minute. Yeah, we set up a table in our church, don't we? This is one application, not necessarily the full application. We have the Lord's table. We do dine with Jesus weekly. Sometimes we just eat bread and drink wine. Sometimes we dine with Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you want me in your church, open the door. I'll come in and dine with you. And I think this has pretty much direct application to the Lord's Supper because he appointed this, and it's called just that, the Lord's Supper. So when you dine with Jesus, in your heart, by faith, as you draw your life from Jesus, as Jesus said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And people were scandalized as he talked about cannibalism, and he said, what are you going to do if you see me ascend back up into heaven? He said, it's the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, those are their spirit and their life. So Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about physically eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I'm talking about you receiving my word as if it's vital, just like your food is, like your bread and your wine. So he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, so you got to hear the voice of Christ and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There'll be that this is a promise of intimate fellowship with Jesus. You know, I want that. I hope you do too. And it's like, well, what do we do? We'll pray and ask him. Then he gives the promise to him who overcomes, literally to the one who is victorious. To the one who is victorious, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, he's not going to say you get to become a little god or some foolishness like that. That's not what Jesus meant. But he's saying if you're victorious, you will have authority because you'll be doing God's will and the Holy Spirit will be working in you and you will be seated with Christ. We already are seated with him. As he's seated in the heavens, it says that in first, or in, rather in Ephesians chapter two, the first few verses. But this is a promise to be with Jesus, both dining with him and as he reigns. And how do the saints rule the world? By their prayers. 
You call upon the Lord. God hears your prayers if you're trusting in Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That verse is the same in all seven churches. This verse shows that when Christ speaks, as he says in verse 14, thus says the, the amen. It's, it's Christ speaking, but here we find out it's the Holy Spirit who is speaking. What's that tell us? That when Christ speaks, it's the Holy Spirit. And when he speaks, we need to listen. We need to listen. In John 6, verse 67 and 68, that passage I mentioned when people, when Jesus talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, many said, this is a hard saying. They didn't understand. They left him. Many professed disciples turned their backs. We read in verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, will you also go away? Love Peter's answer. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're not going to leave you because you promised to never leave us. So again, what does all this mean? Quickly, Christ is never going to leave us. He does deal with us. Being comfortable at the wrong time can be deadly. By the way, God wants you to be comfortable. There is that comfort of love that is in the gospel. He wants you to be comfortable in Christ. But if you belong to him, he's not going to let you be comfortable in disobedience or in deadness or in lukewarmness. He'll make you uncomfortable if you belong to him. Why? So that he can give you the real comfort that comes from trusting him and knowing him, not just in this life, but forever. And so the evidence of a repentant heart is a renewed zeal. Remember the woman that came in when Jesus dined at Simon the Pharisee's house? And Simon didn't greet Jesus. He didn't anoint him. He treated him like what well, we would say very rudely today. And this woman comes in during, you know, they would recline at table. So they're, they're, they were toward the table and their feet were out. She comes and starts weeping over the Lord's feet. She washes his feet with her tears. And Simon and the others that were like Simon, the Pharisees, they were there. And they're looking at this woman thinking, well, if this man were really a man of God, he'd know that this person who's touching him is a sinner. You know, they kind of look down at her. So let me just read to you what Jesus had to say to Simon. This is in Luke chapter 7. So Jesus asked him, he said, uh, when all this is going on, you know, they're thinking, oh, she's a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, this is uh, Luke seven forty. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. One's about a year's worth of wages. The other one's maybe a week's worth. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned, that is, Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. I believe she may have started to do that when she came in and saw Jesus' feet had not been washed, that he'd been treated rudely. I think it maybe broke her heart and she realized who she was and it hurt her to see that Jesus was being treated so poorly. Maybe that's what I say. She came in, she saw the Lord's feet hadn't been washed. Her heart was broken over it. 
She wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. That was common greeting. Give someone a kiss on the cheek. This woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. She had an, al fragrant oil. She had an alabaster box and poured very, very expensive ointment on his feet. He says, therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, he's not saying she's forgiven because she did those things. It's a perfect tense. They already are forgiven, and they stand forgiven, is what Jesus is telling Simon. This is evidence. Her sins have been forgiven, and they are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, to Jesus, turns to the woman, and this just put the Pharisees in a rage. He, he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. She heard, wouldn't it? Wow, what a privilege. She heard from the mouth of the Lord Jesus her sins. She was very much aware of them. Her sins were forgiven. Then those who sat at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And I love it because Jesus just ignores them. <laughs> then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> he just ignores the Pharisees and assures her of forgiveness. That's the comfort we want. It comes from Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, be with us now, we pray. Give us that true comfort that comes from repenting of our comfortableness and of our just coldness and lukewarmness, Lord, and re re restore us, Lord, we pray. Uh, as that gentleman said many years ago, swizzle us, Lord, stir us up with renewed zeal by your Spirit working in us and help us to love you and to love others in such a way that it shows itself in our actions and in our words. And we just pray you'd be with us now. Bring it about, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for being lukewarm. Have mercy upon us. Those things that we think are okay that aren't in your sight, we pray you'd lead us in the way of truth and away from everything that displeases you, Heavenly Father. For we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And I believe we have a closing.